0: Just a few verses left, we've almost come to the end of our study in the book of Romans, and so I thought it would be good to take a quick look behind us to see all the territory that we've covered with Paul as he expressed the gospel and why it was so important to get the message of Jesus out to all people everywhere. Paul wanted the believers in Rome to realize they need not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And he went on to teach them that in Christ, a righteousness from God has been revealed, that is, by faith from first to last. In the early chapters of his letter to the church at Rome, Paul emphasized that God does not show favoritism. He treats all of mankind with compassion, irrespective of their cultural background. All nations, including Israel, had become trapped in sin and selfishness. No one was righteous, he said, for no matter how good we try to be, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. All of humanity is in bondage to sin, the result of which is death. Now, the death of which Paul spoke was more than physical death that comes to all men. The death he spoke of was spiritual in nature, meaning that mankind in their sinful state was separated from God. Having come from a Jewish background himself, he knew that his Jewish readers would find it hard to believe that they also needed to be reconciled to God. After all, they'd been chosen by the Lord. They'd been given the sacred law of Moses. But Paul made it clear that that was no real advantage, for obedience to the law of Moses was not enough to save people from the penalty of sin. In fact, he reminded his readers that the purpose of the law was not to make us holy, but rather it was to teach us just how short of God's standards we fall, and how desperately we need a savior. Paul wanted the Jewish believers to grasp that long before the law was ever given to Moses, Abraham had believed God would be faithful to his promises. And it was that belief, that faith, that scripture tells us was credited to Abraham as righteousness. From the beginning, a person could be justified or declared righteous by faith apart from the legalistic observance of the law of Moses. Paul went on in the next chapters to explain the gospel in detail, how God in his great mercy had sent his very own son to pay our debt for sin. Jesus was without sin, and yet he bore the punishment that we deserved. He took our sin upon himself and died on the cross so that we might be set free. In fact, Paul says that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is through faith in Christ's sacrifice that we can be reconciled to God to receive the gift of eternal life. In Romans 4, 7-8, Paul acknowledged, blessed are they whose transgressions or lawless acts are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. As we repent of our sins and receive the forgiveness that only Christ can give, we die to our old self and are raised to new life in Christ. As part of God's family, we're no longer the person we used to be, and as such, our old way of living is to be left behind, put off rather like an old set of clothes that's no longer of any use to us. Paul underscores this by asking the question in Romans 6, if we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? God wants to give us a whole new way of living. Sin no longer is our master because through Jesus Christ, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Though Paul's main call was to take the message of Christ to the Gentiles, he had been raised as a strict Pharisee, and because of his strong Jewish roots, Paul addressed God's continuing plan for Israel in chapters 9 through 11. He knew that Israel had tried to follow the law of Moses, but had been unsuccessful. They were unable to attain the righteousness they so desired, because they pursued it, he said, not. Not by faith, but as if it were by works. Perhaps the way of faith seemed too easy to them, but Paul made it plain just how simple it is for a person to be saved, declaring in Romans 10 verses 9 through 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As we willingly yield to the Lordship of Christ, giving him complete control over our lives, as we trust in his sacrificial death and resurrection on our behalf, and as we openly confess him as our Lord and Savior and identify with him, we shall be saved from God's judgment yet to come. Initially, many Jewish people had been unwilling to accept Jesus as the one God had promised to send for the salvation of mankind. And so when Christ appeared, Paul says that the Jewish people stumbled over him. And because they failed to recognize him as their Messiah, scripture says a hardness came on their hearts. In the midst of that rejection, God raised up Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and many of them gladly received new life in Christ. But Paul wanted his readers to understand that the plight of Israel was temporary, as though Israel has experienced a hardening in part to the gospel, this will only be until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. For God has not yet finished with his people, the Jews. Truth be told, when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, many people of Jewish descent had already come to faith in Christ, and Jew and Gentile alike had been joined together in God's family tree. In the final chapters of Romans 12 through 16, Paul began to share in a practical sense what that life for God really looks like. He encouraged his readers to cooperate with the power of the Holy Spirit at work within them to become the people God desired them to be. A vital part of this ongoing process of transformation is that, in view of God's great mercy to us, we be willing to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God as being our spiritual act of worship. In other words, we need to be willing to die to self in order to fully live for God. And he urged believers then and now not to conform to the pattern of this world, but rather to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to learn to think differently about life, and this can only be accomplished as we immerse ourselves in God's word and then do what it says. We're to live worthy of the calling that we've received by being law-abiding citizens, but our allegiance is always to God above all else, even if that may bring us into conflict with the world. We know that should we be called to suffer for our faith in Christ, God has an eternal purpose in it all. He is well able to make all things work together for our good and his glory. And no matter what the eventual outcome for us is, we can know that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us when we stand before Christ face to face. Paul likened believers united in Christ to a body made up of different members or different parts, working together for the common good. This new life together as the body of Christ on earth is one that relies on unity, not on uniformity. In other words, though we must all work together United by our faith in Him, we're all different. As believers, we have different gifts, we have different strengths, and yet we are to use our diverse gifts and talents to serve one another. As we fulfill the two greatest commandments of loving God with all of our heart, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. But Paul warns that love must be sincere. He urges us as followers of Christ to hate what is evil and cling to what is good, to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honoring others above ourselves. Though we must agree on the essentials of our faith, we are not to let minor differences of opinion over disputable matters divide us. Believers in Christ can differ in their opinion over non-essential matters, and we need to respect each other's convictions As long as the disagreement is not over actual sin. As we love Jesus and seek to obey him by loving others, we realize that our greatest need is of the Holy Spirit's regenerative power. For ultimately, it is the Holy Spirit who brings humility and unity as we serve one another to the glory of Christ's name. The final chapter of Romans may seem like a long list of names and greetings, but there is still much we can learn from Paul's words to these people. He begins in Romans 16 verse 1 by acknowledging the person who was to carry his letter to Rome. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Cenchreae. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. Paul introduced them to Phoebe, who served in the church at Kenchrei, which was the name of the port that served the city of Corinth in Greece. It is very interesting to me that Paul's communication to the church at Rome had been entrusted into her care, because it goes to prove the value placed on women by Paul and others in the early church. As the messenger who brought his letter to them, Phoebe was seen to be a representative of Paul himself, and he wanted them to be sure to receive her in a way that was worthy of one of God's people, giving her whatever help she may need, for he wanted them to know her dedication to God's people and how she'd been a great help to him personally. Paul then went on to greet some other dear friends of his who were now living in Rome. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Priscilla, or Prisca as she's sometimes called, and her husband a were a very prominent couple in the life of the early church. The first time we meet them in scripture is in Acts 18, where we learn that they'd been from a Jewish background before they accepted Christ. They'd been living in Rome when the emperor Claudius issued a decree expelling all Jews from the city. Because of that, they settled in Corinth, where they met the apostle Paul, who was a tent maker like them, and the three of them lived and worked together. What's really interesting about this mention of the couple here in Romans 16 is that, amazingly, Paul places Priscilla's name ahead of her husband's. Name placements in any list was an important way in those days of denoting honour or leadership. For example, this is why Peter is often mentioned first in any list of the disciples. So, from Paul's placement of Priscilla's name first, some believe that she may have been the stronger of the two, the more vocal, perhaps the more at ease with things involved in their ministry than her husband Aquila. But the beauty of their being mentioned in this list is that they're listed as a couple. And I think it gives great encouragement to couples everywhere to serve the Lord together, to blend their gifts and labor alongside each other. Paul calls them my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They had indeed served the Lord alongside Paul, not only in Corinth but also in Ephesus, before returning to Rome. In each place that they lived and worked, a church had met in their house, and they'd done much to not only lead others to faith in Christ, but also to teach them sound doctrine. Paul doesn't mention precisely how these two risked their lives for him, but it must have been under rather dire circumstances, as not only was Paul grateful to them both, all the churches of the Gentiles were as well. It's a story that I wish we knew, but we do know Priscilla and Aquila faithfully served the Lord together, keeping their hearts and their hands open to others. And even as Paul wrote this letter, another church was meeting in their home, as was their custom. Paul continues with a rather long list of names which we won't read in its entirety. There are 24 names altogether in this section of the chapter and most of them we know little about. Something that is worth noting, however, is that of the 24, at least six of them are women, which I think is important. Paul has often been accused of being rather harsh in his views concerning women in the early church, but I think this part of the text proves that criticism may be somewhat unfair, as his appreciation for their work for the Lord is very evident in these verses. Another thing of interest is that of the 24 names in this chapter, 13 of them can also be found in other historical documents or inscriptions in Rome itself, all of them having to do with the emperor's palace. In his letter to the Philippians, written much later when Paul was actually imprisoned in Rome, he sent greetings from the church there and he wrote that all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Perhaps the 13 individuals mentioned at the end of Romans were some of those mentioned in Philippians who had worked in Caesar's household. We can't be sure, but I find it interesting to think that even at this early stage of the church in that city, Christianity could have spread through the different sections of the imperial palace already. The next names we have any information about are Andronicus and Junia in verse 7. Paul asks that they greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. When Paul calls them his relatives, he likely means that they are fellow Jews. Not only had they been imprisoned with him during one of the many times he was incarcerated, but Paul explains that they were in Christ before he was, which leads us to believe that they must have been Christ followers as early as when Stephen was stoned to death in Jerusalem. For Paul had come to believe in Christ shortly after the stoning of Stephen. What amazes me is that Paul tells us he considered them to be outstanding among the apostles. You will remember the word in Greek for apostle, apostolos, means one who is sent out. It applies most specifically to the twelve original disciples Christ called to be with him in his earthly ministry. They're the twelve apostles that figure so largely in the history of the early church and in the prophecies about the last things. Because Judas fell, Paul himself became the last of those twelve as one born out of time, he wrote. But the term was later used to also describe those who were sent out by the churches to evangelize and take the message of Christ to new areas. Both Andronicus and Junia may have been sent out in that way, as were many others. It's interesting, though, that the name Junia or Junias, as it is sometimes written, was a name that could be given to either a male or a female, and some have wondered over the years if perhaps this individual Paul spoke of was indeed a woman. In the next verse, Paul sends a greeting to Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord. Ampliatus was a common name among slaves at that time and yet one of the earliest sections of the Christian cemetery known as the catacombs in Rome has a very large and ornately carved tomb with the name Ampliatus on it and one wonders if this is the tomb of Paul's friend. After greeting others in verse 12, Paul continues, Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. It seems likely that Tryphena and Tryphosa were twin sisters, whose names, by the way, meant dainty and delicate. Some think that this is probably a reference to their high social status in which they would have been entitled to a protected aristocratic lifestyle. But they apparently laid that lifestyle aside to serve the Lord to the point of exhaustion for those in the church Far from being dainty or delicate, these tough women worked hard for the Lord, as did Persis. Paul goes on to greet Rufus in verse 13, whom he says is chosen in the Lord, and his mother, whom Paul said had been like a mother to him as well most commentators believe that rufus was the same rufus mentioned in mark chapter 15 verse 21 you may remember that a man by the name of simon of cyrene was forced by the romans to carry the cross of christ the rest of the way to the crucifixion site of golgotha and mark mentions that simon of cyrene had two sons alexander and Rufus. A Rufus is mentioned here, and in Acts 19, a man named Alexander protected Paul during the riot in Ephesus. Isn't it wonderful to think that the experience must have changed Simon's entire family, and that his wife and sons were quite possibly involved in the early church and were known even to Paul? We do not know, but it is certainly interesting to ponder how all of these people may have been connected. Whether their stories are known or unknown, all of these individuals are remembered and honored as people who were important to Paul in the life of the early church. Paul was trying his best to draw things to a close but it seems like there was still so much he wanted to emphasize and he goes on in verse 17 to remind them of the need for unity within the church. He says I urge you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Paul makes one last appeal to the believers in Rome to keep themselves from evil, and he focuses on two different things that will limit the effectiveness of any church. Firstly, he warns them against those who cause divisions. For he knew Christ's warning that a house divided cannot stand. And secondly, he cautioned them against those who sought to put obstacles in people's way that were contrary to the teaching of Scripture. We are to stay away from those who try to wreck congregations through sowing strife and creating obstacles for others who are trying to follow Jesus. Paul warns us to be watchful, because these people are deceitful and can be very persuasive. In much of the same way as the serpent that deceived Eve, they won't appear like the dangers they are. And Paul states that by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of trusting and inexperienced people. Paul wanted to give them assurance and confidence in verse 19. He wanted them to realize how happy they'd made him in their well-known commitment to obedience. But he knew that the enemy had been trying very hard to divide the believers in Rome, causing them to focus on their differences rather than on their unity as Christ followers. And so he reminded them to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And then Paul says the most extraordinary thing, that the God of peace would soon crush Satan under their feet. Simply put, As they pursued peace with one another in the church, God would use their unity to crush Satan's work in that city. Their unity would bring them to greater effectiveness as the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was with them and flowed through them. Paul seems to have been Timothy's mentor, and many Bible teachers believe that Paul saw Timothy as his successor. In fact, Paul wrote two epistles to Timothy to guide him in his ministry, and perhaps one day we can study those together. Paul then brings his letter to an end with a beautiful doxology, an explosion of praise to God that summarizes the gospel he loved, he preached, and he ultimately died for. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul brings everything back to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the plan of God hidden for ages past, but now revealed and made known by God's own command to all nations. It is only through the gospel that men and women from all nations, from all walks of life, can stand confidently in God the Father's presence and live lives of righteousness, peace, and joy as they wait for his return. This is the good news. God has come to us in the person of Christ. He has paid the price to redeem us from sin and death. He is with us, helping us to live lives that honor him and bring us blessings and peace. And he will one day welcome us into his presence where we will live with him eternally. Truly, what more can we say than to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. May God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.